Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. We've got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to start things off with Kim Cross, the author of the book, What Stands in a Storm. After we talk with Kim, we're going to talk with short story writer Karen Bender, whose newest collection, Refund, has been long-listed for the National Book Award in Fiction. And we're going to end things with a required reading by Dave Stark, talking about J.R. Moringer's The Tender Bar. And now, on with the show. This week, I talk with Kim Cross, author of What Stands in a Storm, Three Days in the Worst Superstorm to Hit the South's Tornado Alley. The book, which came out in March, has garnered praise. Amazon has it ranked as one of the best books of 2015 so far. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ron Powers said of Cross that a new star has appeared in our literary sky. The book covers a day in April 2011 when tornadoes devastated the South. It is meticulously reported, but reads like a thriller. Cross has reported for such venerable newspapers like the Anniston Star, the Birmingham News, the New Orleans Times-Picayune, and the Tampa Bay Times. It was at the Times that Cross worked with Mike Wilson, who she says had a great influence on her life as a writer. She's also worked on the staff at Southern Living and Cooking Light. Her writing has also appeared in Outside, Runner's World, and ESPN.com, among many other publications. As usual, we've linked to Cross's work at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Kim, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Let's let's start off uh, by talking about your book, What Stands in a Storm. Can you Can you talk about the book and what you were hoping to capture in it? Sure. So the book is a literary nonfiction account of the biggest tornado outbreak in recorded history, and I wanted to take you through the storm from the perspective of the people who lived it. I wanted to put you in the room with the people who were huddled in their safe room. I wanted to um, give you a big perspective of what's happening across 21 states through the characters who are meteorologists. And um, I wanted to do it in a cinematic way so that you felt that you were part of the historic event as it was unfolding live, and you didn't know any more in any given scene than the characters knew in that exact moment. What, um, what made you want to write this book? Well, it happened in my backyard, really. Um, everyone who lives in Alabama, I live in Birmingham, uh, everyone here either was personally affected or knew someone who was. And, you know, 62 tornadoes hit my state in one day, and a lot of them were the biggest variety, the, the EF4 and EF5s, that really can just wipe the town off the earth. And I was sitting at home in my house on my couch with my husband and my four-year-old son when the EF4 that struck Tuscaloosa was coming through town. And um, I had lived in Tuscaloosa twice, first as an undergrad and second after working for a few years in San Francisco. I moved back with my husband and uh, went to grad school. So we had just lived there recently recently. 
And we were looking at it on TV as it was being captured by the live Skycam um, coming through what was formerly our hometown. And it was like that moment when you were watching the, the towers fall on, on 9-11 when you think, can this be real? You know, is this really happening? And um, the tornado continued coming toward, you know, toward Birmingham where we live. And for, um, for a little while, it looked like it was on track to, to hit our house. At some point, the power failed, and we got in our laundry room and put bike helmets on and had the moment that everyone who's ever been through this um, has experienced where you have time to think, um, wow, we could die. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't many times in your life when, you know, you can contemplate that, but um, we had time, and it was, you know, it was, it was terrifying. Um, so I felt like this was such a shared experience for everyone in our state and really anyone who's been through a storm. And um, and wanted to to you know capture it, um, you know I, I looked in there, I didn't find the book that I thought ranked up there with um, the perfect storm and Isaac Storm that happened to be about tornadoes, and mm-hmm. so I thought you know this really needs to be told. Mm-hmm. So the, the tornadoes happened in April of of 2011. Mm-hmm. How how quickly did you know then that you wanted to to tackle that as as a book? You know I didn't know um, at the time. I didn't think at the time about writing a book. I just uh, went back to work. I was a, um, a senior editor at Southern Living at the time, and, you know, Southern Living doesn't typically do news, but um, our editor, Lindsay Behrman, said, you know, this, this happened in our backyard. This is, this is our story. We need to do something. And the question was, what do we do with a four-month lead time? What do we write that'll be relevant for our readers? And that, you know, we'll say something that hasn't been said and, and still be relevant four months from now. And um, I was one of only, you know, a couple of, um, I guess, staffers who had had news experience. I worked at the New Orleans Times-Picayune and um, the St. Petersburg Times for a brief while. And, and so all eyes kind of swiveled toward me. And, and I just kind of felt like, you know, I got this. This is, yes, we're going to tell the story. So um, they appointed me to, to head up a team of writers and photographers who canvassed disaster zones in, in um, a number of states affected. And we all went out and we looked for, um, you know, things that kind of fit the theme of what, how people cope with disasters, whether that disaster is a flood or a hurricane or a tornado or 9-11. And so we, we wanted to know, like, okay, how do people cope? And the, what we found kind of fell into themes that I thought were, were universal and timeless. And they were, for the story, they were faith, food, and fellowship. Um, and that's how... Uh, people dealing with a crisis typically um, kind of got through that crisis. So that's the story we wrote. Um, also for that story, um, Rick Bragg, who I had recruited as a columnist for Southern Living's back page, um, the Southern, Southern Journal column, he lived in Tuscaloosa. He still does. And so I, mean, I, I called him and I said, you know, are you okay? Were, you know, were you hit? And he said, you know, um, our our street was hit. We live at the good side of the street, but, you know, at the other side of the street, bodies are being pulled out. And so, um, you know, after we established that he and his family were, were okay, um, you know, I asked, would you, would you write something for us? Because it's, it has hit home, you know, this is, you know, you're, you're seeing it live, and, and I knew he would do a beautiful job in describing the timeless things um, that, that happen in, in a crisis like this. So we did the story, and... Um, it got hundreds of reader emails and letters and comments, and a lot of them 
said the same thing. It said, you know, this made us proud to be Southern. This mm-hmm. made me cry for the first time of 30 years of reading Southern Living. And um, we realized that it, it really um, hit people in an emotional place that um, is, I don't know, that, that underscores the importance of storytelling in, in I think, the healing process of, uh, of a community and mm-hmm. an individual. So after those readers' letters, those were really what got me thinking that this should be a book, because I thought, you know, this this story meant something to people. It helped them in some way, for some of them, and um, and maybe it could do this on a, a bigger scale um, through a book. And then I also, because that story was so focused on the aftermath and um, the way, you know, the things that tear our world apart reveal what holds us together, I wanted to tell the story of the storm itself as it was unfolding, because it was the, um, you know, one of two outbreaks um, in, in recorded history that have um, been of this magnitude. The other one was 1974, and um, it also touched uh, Alabama, but most notably Xenia, Ohio. So mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know, I want to make sense of this horrible thing and also show um, the beautiful things that come from our brokenness. Mm-hmm. Have you, uh, before you started writing this book, were, have, were you the type of reader who liked these type of um, because you, you're right, there are natural disaster books for almost every type of natural disaster, right? There's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Simon Winchester's book on the 1906 earthquake in in San Francisco, and there's the Perfect Storm, uh, Sebastian Junger, and uh, just about, uh, you know Isaac Storm for hurricanes mm-hmm. uh, by uh, by Eric Larson. Did you like to read those those types of books before you started working on this? I don't know that I was drawn to natural disasters, but I have always been drawn to literary nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, John Krakauer was one of the first writers that I fell in love with. I think mm-hmm. he's the only writer to whom I ever wrote a fan letter <laughs> when I was like a teenager. Um, and Into Thin Air just gripped me, and I thought, oh my God, mm-hmm. I want to do this someday. It just took my breath away. And then um, I read The Perfect Storm and felt the same thing. And so I, I've always been, I've always wanted to do that and just never had the opportunity to do it. So when um, this unfolded, it, it just seemed like this is the book I've been waiting mm-hmm. to tell my whole life. And it was the perfect first book for me um, for that reason. You know, it was in my backyard. It was really personally meaningful to me. And it was um, in, the, in the genre that I, you know, I want to pursue for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of my, my breakout moment. Yeah, I know um, you, you mentioned earlier, and, and, and it's mentioned on your website as well, that when you were writing the book, you wanted to make sure that um, that the reader didn't know anything that the people who were experiencing it didn't already know. Can you talk about why you went ahead and, and built, built the book that way? Well, I wanted to give you the sense of urgency and chaos and uncertainty that really was the hallmark of that day for everyone, from the meteorologists to the people who were going through it to the families who were searching for people they didn't hear from. I felt like that was the emotion that you needed as a reader to feel in order to really empathize with the characters. And what made that possible was um, a very strict timeline, or basically, you know, like five timelines layered one upon the other, that um, allowed me to, to capture that. And Technically, I started with um, the broadcast of James Spann, who was the meteorologist that everyone turned to on that day. And someone had posted his wall-to-wall um, broadcast of 
uh, basically he goes wall to wall coverage in, in a storms, which means that there are no commercials from the minute the first warning um, goes on the air to the expiration of the last warning of the day. No commercials, no shows, no interruptions. And so um, someone had posted that transcript on YouTube in 15-minute in increments. You can go on and see it. And I sat myself down in front of the computer with a cup of coffee for several days and transcribed the whole thing from, um, you know, it started in the morning and then it continued in the afternoon with the second round and then the third and, you know, uh, most devastating round of tornadoes came from the afternoon um, ending around 9 p.m. And that really gave me um, a you know, verbatim dialogue, which is great, um, and also a sense of exactly what he knew at a specific moment in time. And I had timestamps. Every time he said something, I would make a little note of the time. So I knew that at you know this precise moment in time, he, he, he could see that there were seven cells in Alabama, and he didn't know if they all were producing tornadoes and he didn't know exactly, you know, what was happening or how many people had died. And so, you know, that's pretty hard to recreate in retrospect um, without that kind of source. So um, that's, that was kind of the, uh, the approach I took to, to doing that. Was that, was that timeline, um, that transcript um, of The Weatherman, uh, was that your first bit of reporting on this book? You know... I, I, I can't say what was my first bit. I mean, it really started with the um, the magazine piece mm-hmm. and a lot of the leads I got from that, very few of which I actually used for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there are only one or two characters and, and one chapter that was, that was uh, I guess, a, a translation of the magazine piece. But I would say that was my starting point in knowing, like, in building the arc of the story and um, recreating the unfolding of the event with the, the tension and suspense that it needed to have for, for this kind of book. Mm-hmm. How, how did you find people to talk to um, for, the, for the book? Gosh, so, you know, I, I really had to approach it with almost a, you know, a, a canvassing casting call where I looked at all of the towns that were hit in Alabama, and then I looked, um, you know, there, there were lists of victims, and, I, and I, I looked at almost all of them to see, you know, who these people were, um, what had happened to them, how they died, um, you know, who they left behind. And then from them, I started winnowing down to, like, who, who do I want to focus on? You know, there were too many towns hit and too many tornadoes to include them all. So I really had to narrow it down to, um, you know, a, a, a reasonably small cast of characters so that you wouldn't, as a reader, just get lost in all of the people. Um, and so I narrowed it down to... Um, two towns that I thought would be representative of a lot of the towns, and one was Tuscaloosa, which is the home of um, the University of Alabama and the you know award-winning Crimson Tide football team. And I figured that most people can relate to a college town, and you know it was the biggest um, population center that was was hit by a, a you know a big one that day. And then I also chose Cordova, which was a, a tiny little town about an hour north um, west of Birmingham. Because Cordova, unlike Tuscaloosa, had a volunteer fire department. They didn't have professionals. They had, you know, people who are unpaid and go out on search and rescue because they love it. And they have considerably fewer resources than a town like Tuscaloosa. And I wanted to show what the little towns were going through and how that was different from the big cities. Because most of the firefighters in our country are volunteer firefighters. And I thought that that was really an important perspective to convey. 
And then within those talents, I looked for, for characters that I thought would, um, you know, be, be relatable, be people that you could relate to and who would remind you of someone that you know so that you would paint a familiar face on them and really care about them. And um, as an aside, that's one of the reasons we didn't put pictures of the characters in the book is we wanted you to um, adopt them like you do a you know, fictional character and make them yours and put your own face on them and care about them. And we knew that readers would ultimately Google them and, and see pictures of them um, you know, after the fact and, and know who they were. So in Cordova, I, I focused on um, the firefighter and who he was, I think, 18 at the time. He was 21. Um, Brett Dawkins was 21 at the time, and he and his mother lived in a house that was actually hit um, by the second round of storms. Cordova was a rare town where it was hit by the morning storms, and then it was hit by an EF4 in the afternoon. So it was hit twice in one day, and um, Brett was downtown sort of cleaning up the rubble from the first storm when the second one hit and you know he had footage of on his phone of the tornado coming through the town you could actually see it through the crack in the door where he was filming and um uh his his house and was taken out by the storm as well so he was both a victim and a rescuer and i thought that that was a really powerful combination Mm -hmm. um and then in tuscaloosa i focused on a house where three students from different colleges were um, hiding and doing everything right. And um, they th- there was incredible amounts of, of um, source material on them from interviews with um, the mother who was on the phone with her daughter when it hit and remembered, you know, consistently every word of dialogue to the Facebook posts and the text conversations that were playing out um, all time-stamped in the minutes um, before the tornado hit the house. So um, from that, there, you know, is a pretty powerful story of, you know, both rescuers and victims and people who are um, waiting for it to hit and then the families who go searching for them. Mm-hmm. Was it um, hard at times reporting or difficult reporting, uh, not physically, but like emotionally, because you are um, you're, you're interviewing people who whose lives were, were devastated uh, in many ways. Was that was that difficult? Oh, absolutely. That was the hardest part and also the most fulfilling part. Um, you know, I think that empathy is what made the book what it is, but it also is, is um, it's what makes it hard because you, you feel their pain. I mean, I cried a lot <laughs> in the reporting and writing and fact-checking of the book, and um, it did take, um, you know, a bit of a mental toll, but any time I tried to I started to feel sorry for myself, I would just remind myself, well, you know, what you're feeling is just an iota of what these people have been through. So, you know, suck it up. You, you, but, um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> you mentioned that um, that you were kind of, you rode out the storm in, in your own house. So I'm assuming mm-hmm. your house was all right? You know, it was. Um, our neighborhood was not even touched. We didn't see the trees even stir. So um, I, I can't... I, I feel like it's not even fair to say we rode out the storm. We um, we appeared to be in its path, and as it was approaching when we lost power, we got in the laundry room, which is what, you know, what you're supposed to go to the bottom floor, middle of the house, small room, away from windows. And that is what we had. We don't have a basement. And we got on um, our cell phones, and we followed James Van's Twitter feed, and he posted a link to the live footage that he was broadcasting on TV, so we were able to watch TV on our phones. 
and he knows Alabama geography so well that he calls out, um, you know, catfish restaurants and four-way stops and, and specific neighborhoods that are um, in the path of the storm so that people can get to safety. And at one point, he did call out our neighborhood, so it got very real at that moment. Um, but like I said, nothing nothing happened in our neighborhood. I think it hit about seven miles away um, in Pleasant Grove, and we were we were lucky. But on a day like that, it's it's almost like Russian roulette. You just don't know you know where the bullets are going to come out and hit. And um, so everyone has this sense of wow, that could have been me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um- I, you mentioned as we were, were planning for this talk that you oftentimes, when you were reporting, uh, thought as a fiction writer. Um, but that's when you were reporting, not necessarily writing. Can you talk a little bit about why why you would do that and, and how it could help you um, later when you started writing the story? Absolutely. So um, this is something really new for me because I've always been steeped in journalism and nonfiction and you never make anything up. You don't imagine anything. You just go with what the source does and you fact check it. And suddenly I, I started, you know, when I was roughing out some of the scenes, I started noticing that, you know, this feels a little bit thin. So I'm, I'm in the house, but I don't know exactly what the house looks like. And so, you know, if, if I'm the character and I'm hiding here um, and I turn to the right, what do I see? Um, I don't know that. So that would guide my questioning, and it would guide details that I would look for. Um, there was a scene where um, one of my character's sister is driving from Mississippi to Tuscaloosa to look for her sister, who has not responded to calls or texts and is feared missing or dead. And she's made up missing person flyers, and she's driving the car with her fiancé. And so I, I looked up the road they would have been driving and saw, like, okay, if she's looking out the window, what is she looking at? Um, okay, she has these flyers. Are they in her lap? Is she clutching them? Are they in the back seat? And so it's that kind of thing where you um, you then you see how you need to flesh out a scene to make it really come alive, and that um, inspires the questions that you ask to get the detail that it it takes to, to make a scene come alive. So, of course, nothing is made up, nothing's fictional, but you, you almost have to make assumptions and then fact-check them with the source in order to get that level of detail because a lot of times sources, either they don't remember or it doesn't occur to them to um, to tell you these things. And so you have to kind of tease them out that way by imagining what it might look like and then asking them, you know, is this what it looked like? Did it, you know, tell me in your words. And um, and I think that, that that's something I had never done done before, but I it, it, was, it was kind of a fun approach. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about uh, the fact-checking? Um, I know books aren't oftentimes fact-checked, uh, but I know you did. Can you talk about how you went about doing that? Absolutely. So I, I obsess about the facts, and um, I lost sleep over a number of things in this book. And, you know, one was that I, I, wanted, to, um, I wanted to kind of John McSee the weather, and I wanted to make it understandable and um, relatable to a lay audience to the non-scientist without getting so um, overboard with metaphors that the meteorologists would find, you know, flaws in it or roll their eyes or be like, that's just plain wrong. And, um, and then secondly, you know, I wanted to make sure that in, in all of my kind of distilling of what people told me in their interviews into scenes that aren't attributed in the traditional journalistic sense, I wanted to make sure I didn't make any assumptions that um, that were in, incorrect. Sorry, my, my dog is <laughs> sitting right here. <laughs> She's 
making noises. Um, <laughs> so in doing that, um, to fact check it, I, I recruited a number of meteorologists to, to you know, help me as I was writing it to review scenes and also to, to read it before it went to press. And one of them that I, I would like to acknowledge and thank, you know, uh, outwardly is Chuck Doswell, who is probably the most knowledgeable tornado research scientist in the country. He has spent his whole career studying tornadoes um, in the truest hardcore science sense of the word. Um, he is also one of the biggest critics of any book written about the weather, especially those by lay people, because they tend to get stuff wrong. And I approached him early on and said, Chuck, will you... Um, hey, I'm on a podcast. Oh, okay, sorry. We've got... We've got I can I can read you that. I've got a... Hi. <laughs> um, sorry, we, we were hosting an event this weekend, and a whole bunch of people just showed up, so I'm going to go into a room. Okay, okay. so we're going to need to start over. <laughs> Where should I start? Um, should I start with Chuck Boswell again? Yeah, let's start with Chuck Boswell. Okay. So, let me think. Retracing my steps. So in fact, checking the meteorology, I really wanted to make sure that my metaphors were not a stretch, that the information I conveyed was, was accurate. And this is hard to do because one, one little word in, um, you know, in science can change the whole meaning and accuracy of a paragraph. So I reached out early on to Chuck Doswell, who is one of the most experienced tornado researchers in the country. Um, he spent his entire career researching tornadoes and the formation, and um, he's also one of the biggest critics of books about meteorology, especially those by lay people, because they tend to get the science wrong. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he didn't do interviews anymore because he had been misquoted so many times mm -hmm. and that he would he would correspond only in writing. So he had a record of what was said. And so I said, okay, that's, you know, I'm good with that. And as I went, I would just kind of send him passages and say, Chuck, did I get this right? And, you know, he's, he's pretty cantankerous and would say, like, you know, some of, your, some of your concepts are seriously flawed. And I'd be like, great, tell me which ones and tell me how to, you know, how to make them right. And so he vetted as we went along. And then at the very end, I asked him to, to read it and, and really look hard at any of the science that was incorrect. And so he identified... Um, some, you know, serious things that only a scientist would see. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, I hired a National Ge Geographic trained... Let me redo that. On top of that, I reached out to David Quammen and asked him, who fact-checks your books? Because I realized that although uh, magazines have staffs of fact-checkers who go behind you and check your facts, um, book publishers don't. And it was on me to hire one, and so I reached out to David Quammen and said, who checks your books? And he gave me the name of a woman who um, was a fact checker at National Geographic for years. And I thought, okay, she is going to be great with the science. And she was expensive. And um, I sold my mountain bike to, to pay for um, her fees. And I, I had her check the science parts um, very carefully. And then I had um, a good friend of mine, Nahi Datari, who was my editor at Business 2.0 years ago, and she um, helped me with the fact-checking on the rest of the book, the non-science parts. But that even wasn't enough for me because I knew there were things like, um, you know, scenes and, and assumptions and um, details that only the characters and the families would, you know, notice were not right. And so um, one of my last phases before the book went to, to print was to sit down for a private reading with um, 
the each of the three families who had lost a child in the storm. And um, I sat down with them separately, and I read every chapter um, in which their their kid appeared. And it was a really important part of the process, I think, for me as a just a person, as well as a journalist, and also for them as a, a source who's trusting you with the mm-hmm. most you know sensitive and emotional story of their lives. And I felt like, gosh, why wouldn't I trust them with like, hey, here's my story, and if there's a part of it that doesn't sound right or that makes you uncomfortable, let's let's talk about it. Um, you know, as journalists, we're trained never to show a source a story before it runs. And at some point, that just felt wrong to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember years ago, um, Tom French at the Times Picayune had said that, you know, when he spends a year with a source, he reads them story. And um, that catches a lot of little errors that wouldn't be caught by fact checking, but it also, you know, um, is, is an act of trust, re- reciprocal trust after they've trusted you with their story. And so I held on to that, and that really um, helped me. And the other thing that it did was, you know, I didn't want I didn't want my families to experience the book alone, you know, in some room for the first time. I just thought how lonely that would feel. And so I thought, you know, let's read it together. And, you know, we all cried together. We cried the ugly cry, and it was a real bonding moment for all of us. And I think, you know, it, it closed the loop for me, and it... it it wouldn't have felt right not doing that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that was really the final step of fact-checking that allowed me to sleep a little better at night. Mm-hmm. And um, and so far, you know, I haven't had people coming out of the work, work you know, pointing pointing out stuff that's wrong. So, Well, I, uh, I, I know um, that uh, you also said that uh, Mike Wilson had a really big impact on you as, as a writer. Uh, and we had Mike on the podcast a couple episodes ago. Um, oh, great. What, what, uh, what, what, how did Mike impact your, your influence, your life as a, as a, as a journalist? So Mike, I call Mike my, my Jedi master of mentors. I only got to work with Mike, you know, officially for probably three months. And I was, um, a little funny backstory. When I was an undergrad, um, in journalism, I turned down an internship at the St. Pete Times because I didn't know any better. I didn't know it was a you know amazing paper. I just it was totally ignorant, and um, and then I, I regretted it for for years. So then I went out and after I graduated, I worked in San Francisco for four years, and then I came back to grad school. And when I was in grad school, I decided you know I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can have another shot at that because I'd really like to to work with some of those amazing writers. And they took me back, and I, I was assigned to Mike, who was the editor of the Floridian News Feature section. And um, in, in just that summer, I I learned so much, and he really took my writing up at least one notch, if not several, and opened my eyes to what was possible. And just watching writers who were there at the time, like Kelly Benham is amazing, and I would just look at her with awe at what she was able to do, and Landa Gregory, Tom French was there, and... Um, just being in that environment and seeing um, these people who were pushing the limits of what was possible um, so far beyond where I was at the time was really um, inspiring and a defining moment for me. And so after I left, I just kind of stayed in touch with Mike. And, um, you know, whenever I had a really big story or a really tough decision to make, he was the trusted editor that I would reach out to and say, like, what do you think about this? And so he guided me 
at real pivotal moments in my career. I tried not to pester him too much, and um, we're we're good friends, so I, I think that I, I stayed <laughs> shy of too much. <laughs> but um, you know, he would advise career changes, and and um, at one point when I was at Southern Living, I hired him to write a story for the magazine. We were doing a story on the 50th anniversary of To Kill a Mockingbird, and um, wanted to send someone to Monroeville. And I said, if anyone can do this story, Mike would do a great job. And so we hired him and sent him there. And then I found myself in the position of editing my mentor, <laughs> which was which was really neat. We we had a great time, and um, it uh, I don't know. I I just have learned so much from him um, in the gosh ten plus years we've known each other that um, he continues to be a really good friend and and a mentor. Mm-hmm. Well, Kim, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been um, a real pleasure talking to you. We've been talking with Kim Cross, author of What Stands in a Storm. We've linked to her website at www.gangrythepodcast.com. We're going to take a short break right now. When we return, we're going to talk with short story writer Karen Bender, whose newest collection of stories, Refund, has been shortlisted for the National Book Award. This is Gangry the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. Our second segment today features the short story writer Karen Bender. Bender's most recent collection of stories, Refund, was published by Counterpoint Press in 2015. It was recently longlisted for the National Book Awards in fiction. Bender's fiction has appeared in magazines, including The New Yorker, Granta, Plowshares, Zoetrope, Story, Narrative, The Harvard Review, Winerica, and The Iowa Review. Her stories have appeared in Best American Short Stories, Best American Mystery Stories, and New Stories from the South. Bender is a distinguished visiting writer at Hollins University this year. She's also taught creative writing in Taiwan and in the MFA programs at Antioch, Los Angeles, Chatham University, the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and at the Iowa Summer Writers Festival. As usual, we've linked to Bender's work on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Thanks for joining the podcast, Karen. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, exci- I'm excited to have you on the show, um, partly oh. because I had you for a writing workshop back at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, right. oh way God. back in like 2004, I think, <laughs> maybe, the fiction workshop. That's right. That's right. Uh, 
Yeah. And now, and now here we are. It was, yeah, it was a long time ago, but uh, I definitely, I was reading Refund, your, your new book of stories. Mm -hmm. um, and I, w I was like, I have to talk to her about this book. It's so good. Oh, um, thank you. The book has gotten amazing reviews and acclaim. Uh, it was recently included in the long list of nominees for the National Book Award in Fiction. <laughs> um, what has that response been like for you? Um, the whole thing has been just a wonder. I mean, you know, it, it was really a struggle to get it published, this book. Um, short story collections, I think, are often hard to get published, and this one took a long time um, to find uh, the publisher. And um, when my editor, um, Dan Smetanka, took it and the, the press got behind it, it was just, it was just a gift because... Um, they really publicized it. They got it to, I think, um, the right people who could review it and um, and get it. And, I mean, I think it just, I think it also, you know, I think books often have a certain amount of luck, and I think it just, it hit some luck, which was great. You know, it got some good reviews, which then I think led to some of that, you know, I think then that led to the book just sort of being on the radar. Mm -hmm. You know, and then there was the Frank O'Connor um, shortlist, which it was on, um, which was amazing, and then the, the the long list for the NBA is just is just amazing. It's just incredible, you know. So um, each thing feels kind of unbelievable and wonderful. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you can you talk about the book? Um, like, if you had to boil it down to its essence, what is it? <laughs> oh wow! I don't know. You know, um, it's interesting. I mean, I think it is. You know, the, the general theme is money and worth. Um, I think that that issue does come up in the stories a lot. Um, I think part of that was just that the book was started um, around 2001 or 2002, you know, when there was the uh, recession and there was a recession in 2008. Um, and it really, that just instability was in the air and I think affects all the characters in the stories in different ways. Um, so I was, that was just in my mind as I was writing the stories. Um, I, you know, the, there are other things in the stories too. I think there's, you know, people trying to connect in different ways. I think trying to examine families and, and all of their complexity, um, all the different yearnings that go on, you know, in, in families. I think that was something I wanted to look at too. So I feel like it is about a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. When you um, when you when you're working on a, a collection of short stories, like how when when did you start to think that you had maybe a, a larger theme uh, for them? And and mm. can you talk about that process of putting together a book of short stories, which right I I can't even comprehend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I barely can either. <laughs> um, I, I think basically when I mean I just. I mean, I've written two novels, but my favorite form really is the short story. I just feel when I'm writing a short story, I feel really at home, and I, I'm able to explore like a small and particular world, um, you know, the way that I I want. Um, and let's see. I mean, I I think I, I know what's what's kind of funny is when I started the book, I had just gotten a grant from the NEA, and they said, "What are you working on now?" I was supposed to write a little. Um, description and, and my description actually is refunded it said I'm, I'm working a collection of stories about characters and money and there and i mean i look at that now that was like 
10 years mm-hmm. ago, 13 years ago, and I had written the story Refund Then, and I would written the story Theft, and I think mm-hmm. I had also written the story Anything for Money. So there was that theme actually starting, but then I, I think I just go with what my interest in is at the moment. Um, the story Candidate is, is about a politician, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I, you know, who does something I think is really wrong, and I want to know why he would do that. Mm-hmm. So I explored that in that story. Um, uh, you know, that I think the different stories would speak to whatever I'm interested in exploring at a particular moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the theme, I think, evolved at the end. I, I looked at them and I thought, is there something that unites them? And money came up with a lot of them. The issue of worth came up with a lot of them. I think your subconscious will direct you in a lot of ways as you write. Um, and I think th- those were issues that were compelling me. But but they weren't the only issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you said you feel more at home writing a short story than, than, than say, a novel. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah. Um, I think a novel, honestly, is the hardest thing to write in the world because because it takes so much patience and you're you're really running a marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, short stories are incredibly hard too, but I think the one thing that's a little bit easier about a short story is it is shorter, you know, right. and you can get in and out of it a little. I mean, it can still take years to write a story. I mean, some of these stories have really evolved over years. And, um, you know, but a, a novel feels like just a bigger commitment. I think I really have had to nurture patience myself in order to write novels and um it's hard i think it's just psychologically i think it's harder Mm -hmm. um though i think stories obviously psychologically incredibly hard too Mm -hmm. i think they're probably different for everyone right when you're working on a short story do you um I'm trying to think of of, of me, especially with a background as a as a journalist, where mm-hmm. I could be working on three different things at once. Mm, um, yeah. When you're doing short stories, are you always focused on one story at a time? Mm, that's a good question. Um, sometimes, I mean, I think sometimes I'll get an idea like for a few things at once. Like right now, I have like a little list of stories. That I'm working on. I'm, I'm kind of working on one, and I feel like I'm trying to just push it and try and finish it. But I have a couple other drafts of things that that I'm also working on, and, and they're in kind of process. So I know I can go back to them if, say, I have a bad day with this current one. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, mostly I have one at a time mm-hmm. that I'm working on, but I I do have some ideas for others generally, and, and sometimes I'll just come up with an idea. Um, they're just a theme, uh, something that I, I think would be an interesting story, and I'll just write that down for later, you know, to go back to it. Right, right. Um, I know I, I mentioned I, I normally have nonfiction writers on the podcast, and I think you may be the first fiction writer oh. <laughs> that I've had on the show. Can you talk about, um, and I often talk with about those nonfiction writers, about how they said about crafting a compelling story. Can you talk about what you do when you, when you're, when you're work, when you're thinking about a short story, and whether or not that is something that that will grab a reader and pull them through to the end. Mm, like, how, how do you make a story compelling? I mean, what I tell my writing students is, um, how do you create urgency in a story? How do you how do you help someone want to read it all the way through to end? And um, you know, you look at little at, at little kids and how they read books. You know, and and they. 
they turn pages just desperately wanting to know what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it's like it's such a basic human impulse, wanting to know what is going to happen. So I think what you want to do is set up a question for the reader early on. What is the main question of the story? And it's, it's basically what is going to happen, you know, like on a plot level, on a very mm-hmm. kind of crude plot level. Um, and I, we look at things like, um, you know, what, is, what are the main questions of stories? Uh, like Wizard of Oz, you know, how will Dorothy get home? You know, or catch from the, or actually catch in the ride, how will how will Holden right. get um you know to to New York from the, the boarding school? You know, and and um I think that will kind of the right question will then compel the reader forward. Mm-hmm. So at some I do think about when I'm writing and I, I think I I tend to think about it at the beginning of stories especially. Um, you know, what is the first line, what is the first paragraph that will create an urgency that will get a writer, uh, reader reading and stay with the story. Mm-hmm. How, do, yeah. how do you come up with story ideas? Um, I mean, all different ways. I mean, I tend to write a lot from emotion and feelings that I'm trying to deal with in some way. So it, 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 I think the impulse is always in some way internal, but then it's also, you know, something external in the world that's interesting to me or I, I want to figure out... Um, there was an interaction with that as well. Mm-hmm. I, I know in Refund there were. Um, I, I noticed there were s- several short stories or several several mm-hmm. stories in the collection mm-hmm. um, that were kind of um, developing out of some um, scenes that we've gotten used to seeing in in the media. Uh, the, the the very first story starts with a mass shooting, mm-hmm. right, uh, right? And then you have a story that is is tied to 9-11. Right. Um, can you talk about, like, what draws you to those, maybe those types of ideas as ways to set up a story? Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first story, Reun- is Re- yeah, Reunion is the first story. Um, it's interesting because that started actually about a high school reunion, which I had actually been to my 20th reunion, and I found it so mythically fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I just think a high school reunion is such an interesting American ritual mm-hmm. where in a way of marking time and um you know we you know you go to them to see people signs that you haven't seen in a long time and and pre Facebook it really was the only time like you'd <laughs> you'd see right. some people ever you right. know in ten years and then you'd go back and I just found that and so it really started with that and wanting to sort of explore that and then um I think, you know, there are a couple of shootings in the book, and I think part of that is just it's in the American psyche mm-hmm. now. You know, I think people worry about it. And, um, you know, I think it, it's, it was just hard not to write about it. Mm-hmm. Um, 9-11 uh, wrote about partly because we were actually living in the area around Ground Zero during that time. And... Um, it was impossible not to write about it. It was mm-hmm. a way of trying to cope with it, you know. And so I think actually writing about things out in the world is, is just a way of trying to process it, um, you know, as a person. Right. How long, yeah. how long after 9-11 did you end up writing that short story? It's a great question. I actually started writing that story very shortly after because it was so... I mean, we were living about three blocks away, and mm-hmm. um, it it was it was the whole thing was just 
it's just hard to remember how surreal and and just horrible the whole thing was. I mean, and you know, you you come to nine eleven every year, and and it just it just comes back, you mm-hmm. know, that the heaviness and the you know just the the unreal horror of it, you know. So, um, I I did start that story kind of while I took started taking notes on it, kind of pretty quickly after because it just was a way of trying to deal with it, mm-hmm. you know. It was, uh, I it think was, the story it, evolved over a couple of years after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you you have written some nonfiction as well, some essays and, and yeah. some other pieces. Do you operate differently when you're doing nonfiction than fiction? Mm, good question. Well, like what type of nonfiction, like essays? Or like articles? if you're going to, yeah, yeah. So how do you... Um, uh, how how do you write an essay compared to how do you write a short story? Mm. Um, well, I guess with essays, the the difference is you can't, you can't lie. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, you have to, you know, organize the facts in a way that are artful and will create a dramatic effect or, or bring the reader in an interesting way. Um, it's similar to a story, but you are, um, you you have to follow the facts. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in certain ways it's it's not that different. Right. Um, but in a way, I find nonfiction a little bit scarier than fiction because I think um, in fiction you really can do anything. Right. <laughs> and and in nonfiction, you I think you really are putting yourself out there in in a way that that can be scarier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's yeah. Um, and then there's articles. I've done some journalism too, mm-hmm. and and that I find real really interesting because then you're actually going out in the world and. And talking to people, right. you know, and, and also then you're, you know, you have to, you know, look at their stories and really take care of them in, in a way that's really careful and, and honest and um, honors their reality. So I think that I have so much respect for journalists because I think they, they're dealing with other people's stories, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that has to be true. Whereas well, with fiction, you can take stories and just, you know, manipulate them. Right, right. <laughs> However, because you're just, you know, you're just using them, you're incorporating, you know, the world, you know, everything about the world in, um, into your imagination. Right. So it's, it is a different process. And for me, nonfiction is not nearly as frightening as fiction. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's really funny. <laughs> Uh, are you work? What are you, are you working on? Anything right now? Well, I have new stories I'm working on. I, I feel. I mean, one thing that's been really nice about this experience is I feel very encouraged about writing stories. Right. So I have new stories I'm working on, and I have um, a new novel idea I'm playing with. Um, so yeah, so I'm working on, on on those things. Well, that's great, Karen. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's been great talking with you again. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Our required reading this week comes from Dave Stark. Stark has never worked in writing, but has long been captivated by great writing and interested in the craft of writing. In 2008, he decided to create and has continued writing to the blog www.wordswrittendown.com as a way of preserving links to great writing, mostly nonfiction, and also writing about what makes a book or a story so compelling. This week, Stark looks at J.R. Moringer's The Tender Bar. 
The Tender Bar by J.R. Mooringer. It's a memoir about becoming a writer, and it would likely be enjoyed by anyone interested in the craft of writing. The book really brings to mind for me writing memoirs like Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott or On Writing by Stephen King. Moringer is a guy that I learned about after reading a different autobiography that he co-wrote, Open, by Andre Agassi, and I really found The Tender Bar to be a brilliant book for much the same reason that I enjoyed Open, the overarching honesty of the stories told in it. In his memoir, Moringer writes about the things that shaped him into becoming a writer, including growing up with a single mother and male role models who frequented the Long Island bar Dickens. The Tender Bar, it's really an entertaining yarn about how some fascinating people live, and I think it would be enjoyed by someone even if they weren't terribly interested in the craft of writing. But for someone that is into writing, the book has some really great nuggets, with one that kind of stands out to me being mooring or writing of a time with various father figures from the bar, with the quote being, That was the day that everything changed. I'd always thought there had to be a secret password into the men's circle words for the password. That's what I really loved about the book, is it's about writing, about words, and it completely resonated with me. Well, that's it for the show. Join us next time when we talk with Glenn Stout, the series editor of Best American Sports Writing, and also my editor at SB Nation. We're also going to talk with writer Jeremy Collins, who has a piece in Best American Sports Writing 2015. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.